This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. We're going to be studying Psalm chapter 63 and the story behind it in 2 Samuel 15. So if you will, turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 15. And if you're here this morning, you don't have a Bible, you can go ahead and just raise your hand and we'd love to get that in your hands for you so you can follow along with us. So if you need a Bible, feel free to raise your hand and we'll bring you one. This summer, we've been going through a series called The Story Behind the Song. And in this series, we've been looking at the backstory of some of the songs that are written in the book of the Bible called Psalms. We're doing this because when you see the story behind a song, it takes on even greater meaning. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 63 and the story behind it in 2 Samuel chapter 15. Now, In the title of Psalm 63, it tells us that this is a psalm of David. And we studied a few of the psalms of David this summer. And once again this morning, we're studying a psalm of David. And in this psalm, he is in the wilderness of Judah. Now, there are a couple different times in David's life where he unfortunately found himself in a wilderness. One of those times was in 1 Samuel chapter 23 when he is fleeing from King Saul. And the other is here in 2 Samuel chapter 15 where he's fleeing from his son Absalom. Now, there are a variety of opinions of, on which, which of these occasions in Psalm 63 is David talking about when he says that he's in the wilderness. But I think that it's pretty clear that this psalm is actually referring to the events that we're going to be looking at here in 2 Samuel 15. And the reason for this is because, as we will see in Psalm 63, David refers to himself as the king. Now, when David was fleeing from Saul in 1 Samuel 23, he was, he'd already been anointed by Samuel to be the future king, but at that time, Saul was still the king of Israel. And so I think we can say with confidence, because Saul was still the king of Israel in 1 Samuel, that, when, that this psalm is probably written in light of what is happening in 2 Samuel 15. And this psalm this morning, Psalm 63, really begins almost as a lament. And we're going to see that David would have had good reason to lament. But instead of being a lament, this psalm is one that is full of confident contentment. Now the word contentment simply means to be in a state of satisfaction. And here in Psalm 63, we're going to see that David has contentment. But not because of his circumstances, but rather in spite of his circumstances, David is able to find contentment. And yet, contentment for us can be so elusive, can't it? So much of our lives are spent wanting things to change, wanting situations to change, or wanting things that we don't have. We can often be tempted to feel that we will be, we'll finally be content when such and such happens. We'll finally be content when we can finally get that perfect job. Or when we have more friends, once we have a good community around us, then we'll be able to experience contentment. Or maybe when we, maybe we're in the midst of a relational conflict, and once, once we get past this conflict, then I can experience contentment. 
Or maybe we, we tell ourselves, I'll be content once I can find a spouse. If I can just find a spouse, then I'll be content. And then you find a spouse and you say, well, once we have kids, then we can be content. We just need to have kids and then everything will be great. And then you have kids. And you say, man, when, once these kids grow up, then we can be content. And, or maybe you're here younger and you think, maybe, maybe once we finally pay off our school debt or, or our consumer debt, once I get out of this, this problem of money, then I will be able to experience contentment. Or once I can just graduate school and finally have that in the rearview mirror, then I can feel contentment. Friends, the list goes on and on and on of reasons that we can look to to think that we'll be able to experience contentment. But this morning, God wants something much better for us than to look to our circumstances for contentment. Rather, in our text this morning, we're going to see that contentment is found in communion with God. And so that's our big idea this morning from Psalm 63 in light of what David is experiencing in 2 Samuel 15. Contentment is found in communion with God. And this morning, our sermon has two points. The first is we're going to see an unexpected crisis. And then an unshakable contentment. So let's read 2 Samuel 15 here. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14, and then we'll jump down to verse 23. Follow along with me. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses, and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king of judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is from such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were the judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. And so he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messages throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gileonite, David's counselor, from his city, Gilah. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger sent to, came to David and saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And then in verse 23, And the land wept aloud 
as all the people passed on, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed, passed on toward the wilderness. This is the reading of God's word. May he bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning as needy people, God. God, we pray that you would meet us right now, Lord God. I pray that as I preach this sermon, Lord God, that a better sermon is preached than the one that was prepared, Lord God. I pray that your spirit would be upon me, Lord God, that you would speak through me, Lord God. I pray that my words would bring honor and glory to you, Lord God, would they speak to our hearts as we receive them, God. I pray for us as we sit and receive your word, Lord God, would you soften our hearts to hear what it is you have for us this morning. God, we thank you that you are a God who desires to draw near to us and who comes and gives us your word that we may know you in deeper and greater ways, Lord God. So we pray that you would receive all the honor, praise, and glory this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So in this story this morning, we see that David is going through a gut-wrenching betrayal. His son, his own son, had led a rebellion against him. Having to flee for your life would be, would be rough. That would be terrible. Having to try to rescue your kingdom from a rebel, a rebel and restore order and protect lives, that would be a difficult task in any circumstance. But the fact that this is his own son who is leading a civil war against him, the fact that someone that he had held and prayed over and raised and loved, and now this person, that person, is the one who is betraying him. That is a deep and personal pain. Maybe you're here this morning and you have felt a deep and a personal pain before. Maybe you know what it's like to have someone turn against you. Someone you deeply trust betray you. Betrayal causes hurt in the deepest and most personal of ways. And as we see in this text this morning, Absalom has begun to turn the hearts of the people of Israel against David, his father. We see in verse 6, it says, Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Absalom was a charming and deceitful person who had all the outward appearances of a great leader. We see this in the chapter before this in 2 Samuel 14, verse 25. It says, Now in all of Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. This was the guy. This was the poster child for being a great leader. And not only was he good looking, we see here in our text this morning that he was crafty. In verse 1, we see that he's beginning to build an army for himself. He's, it says he's gathering chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. But Absalom understood that he didn't just need manpower. No, so if he wanted to overthrow his father David, he knew he was going to need more than just an army. He was going to need the hearts of the people on his side. And so in those days, it was common for people to come to the king for judgment if they had a dispute. But here in our text, we see that instead of getting a court with the king, Absalom begins intercepting these people who are looking to bring their claim to the king. He's at the gate of the city intercepting them. And he tells them, he says, David does, has, 
David hasn't set any hasn't appointed anyone to hear these kind of cases. But rather Absalom is happy to serve as a judge for them. And in verse 7 we see that Absalom didn't just do this for a couple weeks. No, he did this for four straight years. And you can imagine how doing something for that long, how that would be really begin to turn the hearts of the people, hearing day after day for four years that David, David doesn't have time for you, but me, Absalom, I'm here for you. I know you want to see the king, but, but he's, he's too busy. But I'm here for you. I want, I want to hear your problems. Bring your problems to me. You matter to me. David, he doesn't have time for people like you, but me, I see you. You're important. You can see how that kind of message would begin to erode the faith of the people in their king. And so after four years of doing this, Absalom goes to his dad. And he asked permission to go to Hebron, Hebron, to pay a vow that he had vowed to the Lord. And David tells him, go in peace. But peace is the last thing that is on Absalom's mind. See, Hebron wasn't just any city. No, this was the main city in Judah. This is the place where David had first become king. This is where his kingship had begun, was in Hebron in Judah. And it's also where Absalom was born. So this was a strategic move for Absalom to go to Hebron. And so while he's telling his dad that he's going there to fulfill a a vow that he made to the Lord, this is not the case at all. Instead, he's going there to formally begin the overthrow of his father's kingdom. And upon arrival at Hebron, he sends messengers his messengers sent all throughout the land saying, when you hear the trumpet, declare together, Absalom is the king at Hebron. And as if that weren't enough to add insult to injury, Absalom isn't doing all of this alone. This isn't just him working by himself. No, in verse 12, we see that Ahithophel, one of David's trusted counselors, is assisting him. He hasn't just been betrayed by his son. His son has now also turned the hearts of some of his closest counselors. And so message makes its way back to David about what Absalom is doing. And David and those close to him see the writing on the wall and they say, we need to flee. We need to flee to the wilderness. And now I think it's important to point out that all of this is happening as a fulfillment of what Nathan the prophet had told David in 2 Samuel 12.10. He had said that this would ha- something like this would happen as a result of David's sin with Bathsheba. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 10 says, Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. But while this situation is a consequence of David's sin in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, David is not actively sinning here. I think that's important to realize that right now, in this situation, 2 Samuel 15, he is being sinned against through the betrayal of his son Absalom. And so, just think of the anguish that this would have caused David. Here he is, the greatest king in the history of Israel. The man who had defeated Goliath when everyone else was afraid. The king who had experienced countless victories over his enemies. Yet this king is now fleeing his throne 
Not from foreign enemies. No, he is fleeing from his own son. And we see in verse 30 of 2 Samuel 15 that this is rocking David to the core. Verse 30 says, But David went up to the ascent, went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. In commenting on this passage, Matthew Henry says this. He says, He could not but weep to think that one who had come out of his bowels and had so often lain in his arms should thus lift up the heel against him. Can you imagine the depth of pain that David must have been in in this time? Maybe you're here this morning and you don't have to imagine. Maybe you've been betrayed by a close friend or a family member. Or maybe you're experiencing strained relationships even now with someone close to you. Maybe there's someone that you trust who has turned on you and who is speaking slanderous lies about you. Friends, it is in light of this betrayal that David pens the words to Psalm 63. In the midst of the deepest betrayal and heartache, we see David was still able to find contentment. How is that possible? How could David find contentment even in the midst of his hurt and his pain? And if David was able to experience that, how also can we find contentment like that? Contentment that transcends our situation. How can we learn to be content and at peace even when the world is falling apart? Well, let's turn to Psalm 63 and look at our second point, an unshakable contentment. In Psalm 63, David begins the psalm this way. He says, O God, You are my God. Now at times when we read psalms, opening phrases like this can be easy to just breeze by without giving it much thought. Oftentimes I find myself taking phrases like this for granted. I can think things like, he's literally writing a psalm in the Bible. Of course, David's going to acknowledge that God is his God. He's literally writing God's Word. But I think that's where looking at the backstory of what's going on is so helpful. See, here David is declaring that despite all of the circumstances that he has experienced in 2 Samuel 15, God has not abandoned him. He is still his God. See, right here at the beginning of the psalm, David is clinging to the fact that his communion with God transcends his circumstances. Let me take just a moment to explain what I mean by communion with God. Communion isn't a word that we use a lot in our everyday language. And oftentimes when we do, we associate it with the Lord's Supper, which we do at the end of every service here at Christ Church. But communion with God isn't just talking about the Lord's Supper. Rather, communion with God simply means to have fellowship with Him. And so David's saying, Oh God, You are my God, is pointing out the fact that He has fellowship with God. His contentment is found in the deep and personal relationship that He has with God. 
Which is why David continues in verse 1 by saying, Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. These words here that he's saying, they're filled with passion. They're deeply personal. Here, here's David in the wilderness, in an actual dry and weary land. The climb to up the Mount of Olives is not an easy one. It is difficult and it ends with you being very weary. So here is David, weary and in a dry land. And for him, his present circumstances are a perfect picture for how deeply he feels in his heart and his soul and in his, and in his soul towards God. He knows God personally. And because of that, his heart is crying out for more. God, I want more and more of you. How easy it would have been for David to start this psalm by saying, Oh God, you are my God. And earnestly, I seek deliverance from the situation. My soul thirsts for all of this to change. But instead, in the midst of his difficult situation, it's God himself that David is seeking and thirsting after. He realizes that his contentment doesn't come from a change in circumstance. It comes in the simple fact that God is his God. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we know that contentment doesn't really come from a change of circumstances, don't we? Sometimes I feel like life can just be a big game of whack-a-mole. Once I get one problem figured out, two more pop up. And so we see here that we can indeed find contentment in the midst of trials no matter what comes our way. Because if contentment is circumstantial, then contentment is unachievable. But friends, we see here in this, in this psalm this morning that contentment is indeed achievable. And we see in verses 2 and 3 that David is meditating on God's power and glory. He shows us, he says, because of your steadfast love. Because of your steadfast love. Meaning that God's power and glory is shown through His steadfast love. We see that in verses 2 and 3. And in verses, verses 2 and 3, David, or in verse 3, David says, because your steadfast love is better than life. Now one of my favorite things about the Psalms is how over and over again, we are bombarded with this phrase, steadfast love. The phrase is used over 120 times throughout the Psalms. God's love for us is steadfast. It doesn't change. I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible that we read to, that we read to our kids describes it. It says, you see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love His children with a never-stopping, Never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Friends, oh, what a love God has for us. A love that is unlike any love we've ever experienced. And David was convinced of this steadfast love of God and that it would get him through his trial. And yet, as Christians, we even have a greater reason to be convinced of God's steadfast love, don't we? This love that David experienced is something that we know has come and been embodied. This, lo this love that 
that has been embodied is described in Titus chapter 3, verse 4, which tells us that Jesus, in Jesus, the steadfast love of God appeared. You see, the Christian idea of love isn't an idea at all. Rather, it is a person. 1 John 4.10 says, Love consists in this. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. What is better than life itself? Is it not that the holy, perfect God of the universe would see us, a guilty, messed up people, and say, I love you. I love you so much that I am willing to send my perfect son to live the perfect life that you cannot live and die the death that you deserve. Why would God do that? Why? That is, that is, that is madness. Why would He send the, the perfect one to pay the penalty for our sins? Friends, He does this because His love for us is not distant. It is deep and personal. He, he did this because He desires to commune with us. And He doesn't just desire to commune with us on our best days. No, this is our reality every day. That His love for us is steadfast. We, on the other hand, can be so fickle when it comes to our love. We are often far from steadfast in our love towards God and towards others. But our God, He is a God who never has to fight those feelings towards us. No, while our love for Him can often waver, His love for us never changes. Now maybe you're thinking, that sounds amazing, but how do I get that? I, I want what David has, but right now my circumstances seem insurmountable. I know God, I love God, but he often feels so distant. And I think here in Psalm 63, we see four ways that we can, that we can get what David has, that we can deepen our communion with God. We see this first in verse 4 when it says, I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Throughout the Psalms, we see a pattern of people praising God, not just with their lips, but with their whole bodies, like lifting of their hands. Remember, this psalm was a song that was meant to be sung. God has wired us as people to be moved by music. And I think we probably know that, even if we don't think about it. Just, just think for a second of some of the songs that you listened to when you were younger. Maybe songs that you haven't heard for years. But the moment you hear it again, Immediately, you can remember not just the words of those songs, but the situations and the people that you would spend singing those songs with. There's just something about music that speaks to us on a profoundly spiritual level. And this is why singing songs that direct our hearts to God's praise are meant to deepen our heart's communion with Him. And as our hearts are truly engaged with God in worship, where our hearts go, our bodies should follow. And if you're here this morning and you find it hard to express yourself physically, that 
in, in, in singing, then this might be an opportunity for you to consider how God wants you to grow spiritually. Is your heart fully engaged with Him? Do you want to commune with Him? Or are you more aware of what people might think of you or how it's just not your personality to be that way? Biblically, part of communion with God comes from a heartfelt, vibrant praise that bubbles up in our soul and leads to expressing praise with our whole selves. I remember a few years ago, I really became convicted about this. I would always tell myself, I'm not really that expressive or passionate of a person. I'm pretty laid back. So it doesn't make sense for me to be expressive when I sing. But then one day, the Lord convicted me as I was watching a football game. And I say watching, but that probably doesn't do justice to the experience that I was having as I was doing a lot of yelling, jumping up and down, and passion as I, as I watched my football team play football. And in that moment, I was, I was deeply convicted. The Lord just put something on my heart. And I thought, here I am, being expressive and passionate about a silly game. And yet I am unwilling to be expressive while worshiping the God who gave His life for me. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with being passionate about sports. But our passion for things like sports or any other interest that we have should pale in comparison to the passion we show in bringing praise and communion with God. And so we see here in verse 4 that first, our communion comes through heartfelt, vibrant worship. Secondly, we see that communion comes through meditating on God's Word. In verses 5 and 6, David says his soul will be satisfied with fat and rich foods. Now, that's something we can all relate to, isn't it? There's not much in life as enjoyable as a good meal. Just the phrase fat and rich food makes me to begin salivating. Like, it's so exciting just even thinking about eating some rich and good food. Hopefully, that's in your plans today. Hopefully, after this service, you'll enjoy some good, rich, and fat food. For me, that's, that's, that's in the form of a good, juicy steak cooked to perfection. And for the record, cooked to perfection means medium to medium rare. Um, if you think differently, that's fine. You're wrong. There's nothing wrong with being wrong, but that's, that's how it is. But whatever, whatever the kind of food it is that resonates in your heart, can't we all easily think about how satisfying food is? But here in this psalm, David says his soul is so satisfied, but not, not by food. What is, his ver what is his soul so satisfied in? He says in verse 6, I will remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Here David is saying that he has specific times of the day that he is thinking about who God is. That he is intentionally spending time communing with God. And that's also where we can find satisfaction for our own souls. By setting aside dedicated time to commune with God. Now, I've known my wife, Jessie, for 30 years. Almost 30 years. I told her I was going to say this, and she said, it hasn't been 30 years. Because we met when I was 8, and she was 6, and she's like, I am not 36 years old. Don't do that to me. So, almost 30 years. I've known her for a long time. 
But while we, were, while we knew each other growing up, and then in high school and even in college, we were never really especially close. We went to the same church. We had lots of the same friends. Our families even went on vacation together multiple times. We were around each other a lot, but we did not really know each other that well, and we were certainly not interested in each other. But it wasn't until we served together on a missions trip that we really began to be interested in one another, and we started dating shortly after that. Well, what, what changed there? We'd known each other forever. What, what, what happened? Well, there's probably a variety of factors, not the least of which was my own maturity. But the main one was that on this trip, we, had, we spent a lot of time working together. We spent a lot of time intentionally relating with one another. And the more we did that, the more we desired to spend more time together. And by the grace of God, after nine years of marriage, she's still by far the person I love spending time with the most. And so it is, friends, that our communion with God should be the same. We can't just be around Him. We can't just be around things that remind us of Him. No, communion with God is more than just being around God. It is being deeply and intimately connected to Him. If we want to experience a deep relationship with God, we can't expect that to happen without regularly spending time with Him. And David says, I remember you upon my bed. David had spent purposeful time set aside at night to spend time with the Lord. We know from other Psalms that it wasn't the only time that God did this, or that David did this rather. We know that he also did this in the morning. The Psalms often talk about communing with God at the beginning of the day. Here's just a few examples from the Psalms. Psalm 59, 16 says, But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. Psalm 90, verse 14 says, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. And Psalm 143, verse 8 says, Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. So whether it's in the evening or in the morning or whatever time of day works for you, each day we need to be setting aside time to intentionally commune with our God. So we see that our communion with God first comes through praising Him wholeheartedly. We see that our communion with God second comes through spending dedicated time meditating and reading His Word. And thirdly, here in Psalm 63, we see that we must pray consistently. Now this whole psalm, all of Psalm 63, is one big prayer. It's a prayer of David to the Lord. And we see that throughout this psalm, it isn't just a prayer where David asks for things, but he also prays, he spends time just praying and thanking God for who he is. How often our prayers are just about things that we want, things that we need, ways that we need God to move and change our circumstances. But what if, instead, God wants to bring about a change in us, simply through communing with Him more in prayer? Now, it isn't wrong to pray and ask God for things. There's nothing wrong with bringing our requests to God. But friends, even as we do so, may we always be more satisfied in the giver of the gift. May we be always more eager to spend time with God 
than just thinking about what we can get from God. Recently, we were having issues with one of our kids not wanting to eat and try new foods. Um, in our house, generally, Jesse makes one meal, and that's what we're having for dinner, and we're all going to eat it, and that's how it's going to go. And one of our kids was really struggling with this. There was, their list of things that they don't like was much longer than their list of things that they do like. And it had become so frustrating for all of us that this was really making the whole mealtime a very unenjoyable event for the whole family. And so one evening, Jesse and I were just talking about this and what, what, what can we do differently? And she looked at me and she said, I know it seems like such a silly and small thing, but I think I'm going to start praying about it every day. And so she set a timer for noon each day and she just started having a short daily prayer about this situation. And I wish I could stand here and tell you that because Jesse prayed about it now, that child loves every food. They jump for joy no matter what is put in front of them. But that's not the case. And that's not the point. While we have seen some progress in this area, I think the biggest change really happened in Jesse. See, as she regularly communed with God about this one specific issue, she found herself becoming more patient with our child. She became more aware of the ways that this child was showing incremental growth and was then felt compelled to encourage them even in small steps of growth that she has seen. And most importantly, she became more aware that she has a Heavenly Father who loves her and that there is never too small of an issue to bring to Him in prayer. And so in case you didn't know, my wife is far more godly than I am, but I am so thankful for her example in this, because by watching her throughout this process, it's been, it has caused, it stirred up a desire in me to grow in my communion with God as well, to, to bring with, bring to Him even the small and little issues that seem like not that big of a deal. And in this, being reminded that no, there is no thing too small to bring to our God, that He loves to meet our needs and He loves to commune with us. And so we commune with God through praising Him wholeheartedly. We commune with God through reading His Word meditatively. We commune, through God, we commune with God through praying consistently. And here in verses 7 and 8, we see that we commune with God by remembering His work faithfully. Here we see David remembering how God has been faithful to him in the past and in the present. He says, You have been my help. In the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Here's David. He's still in the wilderness. Nothing's changed. But he can be content in this situation because he is clinging to God and remembering how God has been faithful in the past. I imagine maybe he's remembering back to that scenario in 1 Samuel 23 where he was delivered from the hands of Saul when he was in the wilderness before. Or maybe he is remembering how God had rescued him when he fled through the town of Gath, as we heard about in a sermon a couple weeks ago. I don't know exactly what it was that David was remembering in this moment, but there were so many different times that God had been his help for him to remember. And friends, I think there are so many things that we can remember. Just think about your life. Think about all the wrong turns that you could have taken or all the wrong turns you did take, and yet God still has you here. Do you remember Him? 
Do you see how he has been your help? When we are discouraged in the present, it is often because we are either fearful of the future or because we are, remembering, we are not remembering the right things about the past. We are remembering the hard times instead of remembering how God has gotten us through those times. And can't we say, and can't we remember and agree with how God's promise from Hebrews 13 has proven true for us as well. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 says this, For He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This isn't just a Bible verse to stick on a bumper sticker. No, if we are in Christ, this is each of our stories. Each of our experiences. Oh, how easily we forget. But may we be a people who remember how God has been faithful to us in the past. And because of what God has done in the past and His love for us, and the, the fact that His love for us is unshakable, we can say with confidence alongside David, Your right hand upholds me. Now as we bring this to a close in verses 9 and 10, we see that David confidently declaring that his enemies will be brought to ruin. Here, David's not looking to exact revenge for himself. No, he is trusting that God will vindicate him. Despite the strength of those who are against him, despite their apparent victory over him and the lies they were spreading about him, David is trusting that God has not left him and will not fail him. That God will bring him through what he is going through and not let his enemies have the final word. And this is what we can trust as well. For any who trust in Christ, our enemies will not have the last word. Our vindication will come when we are living in the salvation of our Savior in eternal glory. The words and actions that can sting so sharply and cut so deeply, they will give way one day to the healing balm of living in God's love for eternity. Here, we will, we will hear the reassuring voice of God speaking His love over us for all of eternity. And so friends, we don't need to fight our battles. We don't need to be combative or return their sharp accusations. No, we can trust that God will deal with them and entrust ourselves to His loving hands. Despite the pain, despite the deep hurt of being betrayed by His Son, David began this psalm by rejoicing in God. And here he ends the psalm, rejoicing in God, knowing that the mouths of the liars will be stopped. I don't know what different relational strains or scars you may have come here with today. I don't know what challenges you may be facing. But I do know that in the midst of whatever it is that we are going through, that we can find contentment in communion with God. As we went through the different ways that this psalm speaks about communion with God, maybe there are things that God has been stirring in your heart. 
about how you can grow in your communion with God. Maybe God wants to lead you in deeper experiences of praising Him. Maybe there are changes that you need to make to find dedicated time to be in God's Word. Maybe prayer needs to become more a part of your life. Or maybe you need to spend time reflecting on how God has been faithful to you in the past. And I'm sure we can all be aware of ways that we can grow in pursuing God more. But when we see those ways, we shouldn't feel guilty. We should feel invited. God loves us. And so he wants us to know what it means to be content in the communion we find in him. So let's take a moment of silence and bow our heads and open our hearts and consider how God is inviting us to deeper communion with him.